The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. open the Bible or open our, the word, I want to talk, like I said, about how does faith relate to the church. And I'm going to, I'm going to read last week. I did this too, but I, I I'm taking some, a couple of things and I just want to kind of see, let you see the heading of this is what happens when I read and certain other things strike my mind a little bit. So I want to read a little thing from Rush Jenny. He does talk about faith in the church and a systematic theology. I want to take a couple of things here. And then we'll go from there. And just if you'll follow along with me, <coughs> um, Rushdie says this: Sometimes a problem can be best understood if approached indirectly. As a result, let us consider the nature of the family as a step towards understanding the church. Zimmerman, in his excellent study of the family and civilization in 1946, identified families as trustee families, domestic families, and atomistic families. The trustee family is clearly the biblical pattern. It is society's basic institution. It is a law center as well as a life center, and it is a basic governing force. At this point, a serious problem develops. A trustee family includes more than the biblical family. The family life of old China with its ancestor worship definitely qualifies, as does ancestor worship everywhere. See, pagan Germanic families in some cases also qualify. Also qualify. In other words, while Zimmerman's classification is very useful and essentially sound, its nature is such that it is inclusive of forms of family life without reference to their religious and moral content. The same is true of the church sometimes, and this is where we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. Too often the church is defined in terms of its polity, i.e. congregational, Presbyterian, or Episcopal, or a particular practice such as Baptist. Again, it can be defined in terms of a creed or confession so that conformity to a definition of the faith is the mark of the church. It would be a serious error to underrate the importance of these considerations, but it is also a serious error to overemphasize them. The church is nothing apart from Jesus Christ, and correctness on these other points, however good, cannot replace faith in him. The families of old China and the families of faithful Israel were alike trusty families, but each was informed and motivated by a radically different faith. Now, before I go to the next quote, I want you to understand, what is he saying? He said, we need to be very careful because of this. You're going to hear me say it again. So we need to be very careful that our traditions, no matter how good they are, do not replace an authentic religious faith that applies to all of life. So it doesn't matter which creeds you hold to, which confessions you hold to, what denomination you hold to, but ultimately when, if those things replace the very, the very essential things of Christ Jesus, if they are your go-to rather than the Word of God at any point in time, and it doesn't matter if those things have scriptural proofs with them, if, we, if that is our turn to, 
we are in danger of being no different than in a pagan society. Because what happens is we turn from the word of God and we turn to man's thinking. I'm going to go a little further with Strickler and his, his in the philosophy of faith. He said, faith gives reality to the commandments of God and secures obedience to them. Therefore, by faith, the elders, the saints of former days, obtained a good report from God and men. Faith gives reality to the declarations of God concerning the plan of salvation and secures compliance with its terms. Therefore, by faith, Abel offered a, unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being uh, dead, yet speaketh. Faith gives reality to the warnings of God and prompts to the use of the needful means divinely provided to escape the dangers to which they point. Therefore, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which uh, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Faith gives reality to the promises of God and induces the soul to rely on them and to fulfill the conditions on which they are to be fulfilled. Therefore, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he, he should after this receive for inherit, inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city with which uh, hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Faith gives reality to the blessings and glories of God's eternal kingdom and inspires the soul with courage and strength to do and to suffer anything that it may be may at last be found amongst those of whom the world is not worthy. Therefore, by faith, many suffered trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, the bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, erlain uh, with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wandered, wandered in deserts and in mountains and in the dens of caves of the earth. Such is the power of faith. Such servants of the Lord can it make. Such victories can it win. Such deeds of righteousness can it perform. Now, these are both readings. I'll, I'll say this out of his institutes, but he, I wanted to quote where they came from. See, faith is not something in and of itself. Faith is not something in and of itself, nor is it of man. It is faith in Jesus Christ, and it's God's gift to us. That's why we always quote Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. So not a result of works that so that no man may boast. You see, the center of the faith that the church is to stress is not the institution itself, nor any form it takes, but something greater than itself. The center of our faith cannot be the stress of the institutional church. I'm not saying that we don't need the church. I'm not saying we don't need to gather. What I am saying simply is this, the point of faith is not the institution. It's Jesus Christ, something greater, something that's from God. And it's the grace, it's a gift 
of faith. But here's a word of truth. Without abandoning the Baptist, Presbyterian, or Episcopal nature, the more strongly any of these churches becomes in the faith, the stronger they become reliant on the word of God, the less it stresses what sets them distinctively apart, and the more they stress the distinctives of God. Christ and his word. And as I gave a little testimony last week of the transition of, of our church, where it started in its Baptist roots and coming forward, let me share with you this. The more we stress the importance of the word of God as the, the first and final authority, the more we did, the more we moved away from a distinctive of a denomination. In fact, that's how we, we went from being a Southern Baptist church to a Reformed Baptist congregation to a, a Christian church. That's how we would decide if someone asks, I always say this, when, when someone asks one day we were eating and someone asked, what, what, did, what are y'all? And, and Henry responded, we're simply, we're Christian. We're a Christian church with no denominational affiliation. And we put Christian Reconstructionist uh, principles into practice. That's all it really amounts to. But distinctively, we are Christian. We are biblically based. And I said, the more we moved, the more we moved closer to the word of God, the more we moved away from those distinctives that made us Baptists, the distinctives that made us a denominational affiliation. And so that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to say we're not Baptists. It's not a bad thing to say we're not Presbyterian. It's not a bad thing to be able to say this is who, these are the distinctives that our distinctive is the word of God. So I'm gonna, let's get here. I, really, we have a very short message, believe it or not, at this point. I haven't given you one point yet, but here's, here it goes, right? Number one, the Bible stresses the centrality of faith and the calling of Abraham. And we're going to look at Abraham's life, considering that we are told in, in Hebrews that we're to have the faith of Abraham. We're going to talk about the centrality of faith in the calling of Abraham. And I want to read to you a couple of scriptures as we start off doing this. Let's look at Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Abraham knows this. There's something about the faith. It's essentiality. We're going to walk. We're going to break this out in just a moment. But Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from its father's corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Galatians 3, he talks of Abraham again. He says, know then it is not those who uh, those of the faith, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Sorry, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I knew that was wrong. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Genesis 15, 1-6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. It says, Fear not, Abram, I am, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. For your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And I, I, I lead this out for this reason. The centrality of the faith, we're going to talk about the centrality of the faith in the calling of Abraham. First, A, a, it says, we must recognize that Abraham was called of God. Honestly, this morning I put a little thing out there saying that what the subject seems like it would be the milk of the word. It would be milky, but I think it's more like a fine whiskey that's been sitting up for a while. If you look at what happens, the calling of God upon Abraham is central here, and we must recognize that Abraham was called of God, not the other way around. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, all, and, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He tells him what? You're going to leave all, all that's familiar, all that is your namesake, all that would line you up with a, a heritage other than what I'm calling you. You're going to leave that. And in doing so, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you up. I'm going to go before you and do these things. I'm going to bless you. And those who, who give you trouble, I will curse them. God called Abraham. Abraham did not just go off on his own doing his own thing. God called Abraham, just as God calls us. When we look at when we look at that passage that will earlier in Ephesians chapter two, it is by grace through faith you are saved. This is the gift of God. It's a calling of God upon the individual. Romans would even tell us, if, if we're looking at Romans 1, that in and of ourselves, we would never, in and of ourselves, we would never choose God. We would, we would always choose not God. Apart from God's gift of faith, we would never choose him. We would always choose ourselves. And that's why when we, and when we look at the bigger picture of things, people say, well, and I'm always reminded, I go down this path, so I have to kind of, People say, well, why does God send anyone to heaven? I mean, why does God send anyone to hell? I mean, why does God send anyone to heaven? Why would he why would he allow anyone? None of us deserves it. That's what scripture tells us. And so when we look at this thing, we must recognize that God did not see something necessarily in Abraham and say, you know what, Abraham, 
you're a pretty awesome dude. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out. I'm gonna do these things and I'm gonna send you over here and I'm gonna bless you because you're awesome. It's not that. God comes to Abraham and he looks at him and say, and Abraham responds, What? I don't even have a child, I don't even have a descendant. And God says, Ho ho ho. Let me show you what I can do. God called Abraham. Second, we must see the nature. We got to see the nature of Abraham's faith. The nature of Abraham's faith. In Genesis 15, 6, he said, what, what, what did it say? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. What does that mean? That he looks at God and he, he he hears what God says and he believes from the very core of all he is. He puts his full faith and trust in what God has said in his word. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We believe because God has not only called us, but he's given us the ability to hear and believe. When we believe, that's that faith that we're talking about. Abraham, Abraham believed God at his word. Had God done anything prior to this really in Abraham's life to say, I, we don't know. Had God revealed himself in any other way? Abraham, Abraham's old, isn't he? He doesn't have he doesn't have any descendants. He don't have a son. He don't have a daughter. He he's fixing to have to give everything he he owns away to a servant. He has no one to give. And God says, "Ho, oh, ho, hold on, I'm going to bless you." And then He tells him to step outside. And when you have a clear night, even here in Texas, when we look out and we don't have the the smog and junk from the refineries, when we look out here. And what do you see? He says, you look out there and you see those stars. As numerous as those stars, you count them. That's how many of your descendants are going to be. And he's like, he didn't in that moment go what? Well, I'm old. This is not possible. Have you seen my old hag? No, it was good. She, yeah, she's old too. What do you say? Abraham believed God. And we can talk about how he imperfectly believed God, but he believed God in that moment. Did God immediately give him a son? No. That was the thing. Belief doesn't mean immediate, that God's immediate response. Believing God means God is faithful at his word. Third, because the other thing is because Abraham believed God, the Lord imputed. This is the biggest. You always tell I have a big word. God, the Lord imputed covenantal righteousness. Imputed, I-M-P-U-T-E-D, covenantal righteousness. What does imputed mean? Does anybody know what that means? You can be wrong. Imputed. Doesn't mean you stink or anything like that, okay? Impute means God places on our behalf. Okay? Let's just give a basic definition. God does this on our behalf. Now, I want you to understand, Abraham was not saved as when we talk about Christ imputed his righteousness upon us. That is an eternal salvation. When Christ 
pays the debt for us on our behalf. That's different. A little bit different. But he imputed a covenantal righteousness upon him. The last part of that, he believed the Lord. And it says he counted it to him as righteousness. So here's the thing. God gifts us with the ability. God gifts us with a calling. God gifts us with the ability to believe. We believe God at his word. And what happens? He imputes on our behalf a covenantal a covenantal righteousness. Was Abraham, I'll ask this, anybody here, was Abraham righteous in and of himself? No. No, he knew he wasn't. But when God imputes that covenantal righteousness, he's, he's doing something very specific. The covenant imputation presupposes a communal, a communal relationship between God and man. What it means is, we presuppose that now there is a relationship between God and us, God and Abraham. Was that, of, was that of Abraham's own doing, that relationship? No. Did Abraham call out to God or did God call out Abraham? God called out to Abraham and called him. See, man is called into covenant by the grace of God, given faith by the grace of God. And sent to act in obedience to that faith and covenant law. Abraham was given faith by the grace of God. Abraham was sent, what? To act in obedience. Abraham, let's go back to this thought. Abraham had to leave the land of his forefathers, his family, everything he knows, and what? Go to where God is calling him, to a land where he is a foreigner, Right? Have you ever been somewhere that you know you don't you don't know anybody? You just go and you don't know anyone that's there? Have you ever been there? From my from our family, we're a little bit different in this. We go to places and do do you automatically feel welcome everywhere you go? I've been have you ever been to a church? I'm just asking maybe if you can remember. Have you ever been to a church visited somewhere and you didn't feel welcome? Hmm. Not everybody's like that. But I have been into places where I've gathered and I felt like an outsider from day one. I've served on staffs where I felt like I was an outsider from day one to the last day I left. So I understand that there's things that go along that. But when you think about this, God called him from everything that he knew is normal, everything where he felt secure. And he says, I'm going to send you to a place where you've never been or you've never known. And it's there. It's there. And there alone, that I'm going to show up and bless you. Do y'all realize that? Do y'all realize that when God calls us to as His people, and He calls us to go to the places where He sent, He sends us, He's not always going to send you to places that are easy. In fact, most of the time, they're not going to be easy. He might send you to a place where you feel all alone. And the only, the only thing that's normal to you is your relationship with him. The only thing that you have confidence in and knowing your future toward is that relationship with God alone. 
Man is called into covenant by the grace of God, given faith by the grace of God, and sent to act in obedience to that faith and that covenant law. Fourthly, excuse me. Fourthly, there's that word again, imputation. This imputation denotes a legal relationship. Huh? A legal relationship. Legal, not illegal. And I'm going to quote what that means. This is really bringing that point forward. Rushton, he talked about relation, this type of relationship, and I want to share this with you. He said, Abraham's faith within the context of thus of, of law, but it is more personal because of that fact. The modern mind separates the legal and the personal. Because humanism has made law status in abstract and hence impersonal. This is not true in the reality of God's creation. My relationship to my wife, this is Rush Cheney talking, it's a personal because it's legal. Because it meets God's law. That's what he means by legal. An Ill illegal sexual relationship is impersonal and exploitive. In, in Scripture, the more faithful we are to God's law, the more close and personal our relationship is to Him and to our fellow men. It's a serious error to import the impersonalism of humanistic thought and law into biblical thought. Our relationship, Abraham's relationship with God, was not just... Uh, it was not just a, a contract of covenant binding. It wasn't just saying, well, here's two, we, each of us have part and we both have a service in this. And as long as you render the service and I render the service and we're both mutually uh, do what we said we were going to do, everybody's going to be fine and we're in agreement. It's not just a legal, um, it's not just a, a contract following the guidelines type of thing. It's not just a rote checklist of but it's a relationship. It's personal. And Abraham's faith was not just, like I said, it wasn't just a checklist of things. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, because why? It's more than, it's more than just following laws. So when I talk to someone and say, I, I believe in, we're a theonomist and I believe that God's law, God's rule is the rule of, uh, of our lives. I don't blame that we go by and we go and do a checklist of laws every day. What we mean is I obey God because I love him. I have a relationship with him. And he has a relationship with me. And it meets his, it, it's personal because it's an obedience to him. We're to love God with all of our heart, our soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Fifthly, this and last, the last thing we have today. Faith requires believing God and his promises. And you might think that this is a restating of the original, one of the other points about how Abraham believed God, but it's not. Because this is the aspect that I was bringing forward. Abraham believed God, but also Abraham had to believe the promises of God. 
Promises are what? Things that are not yet seen. We look at the hall of faith in Hebrews, and what do you find? All of these, all these are part of the hall of faith, but they longed to see the day of the Lord's coming, didn't they? But they had to view it from afar. They had to view it in a way that is not, they didn't get to see it. They didn't get to put their hands on it themselves. See, the two are inseparable. We believe in God's promises when we commit ourselves, our hopes, our todays and tomorrows to the Lord. We can't spiritualize faith and separate it from his promises. <laughs> For those who are watching, we have kids sometimes go back and forth, and, and I also got hit by a chair. So anyways... We can't spiritualize our faith. That means we don't make it into some mystic religion. Our faith is real. And it's not just in the here and now. Our faith has a future view. We hold to the promises of God that not only what his word has said is true, but he is faithful and true. And he will continue to be faithful and true. We long for the day, not that we are we are raptured out of here, that we're rescued into out of the grips of, of, of hell, but rather that we are we have a future that God has said that the meek shall inherit the earth, that we are building a kingdom for God with Christ under underneath his authority and leadership. So faith requires believing God, but also believing his promises that we have not yet seen. Genesis 15, 2, and then I'm going to say in verses 18 to 21, it says, But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What did he say? He said, God, I believe you, but I'd love to believe you, but. And it turns on the day he says, On that day, the Lord, in verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All those names for what? He says, you're going to go from not having any inheritance and no one to leave it to, to you're going to inherit all this, and your descendants will inhabit it. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. You not only will have an inheritance, you will have a heritage from the Lord. Be faithful and true. It is the faith of Abraham in both God and his promises that must mark the church today. We must have the faith of Abraham, both individually and but as his church, greater than us individually. We must have that mark that we have faith in him and his promises. Too often the church identifies faith with itself and faithfulness as loyalty to the institution and its forms and practices. See, 
for even even some of the things that we've done, and there's nothing wrong with it. I, I believe that we should still use and look at the, the children's catechism. We should look at catechisms, but loyalty to memorizing the catechism does not make you a faithful part of the church. Secondly, for those who are who will who, who it's not as much for us here because we are we believe we we take we allow our children who are baptized to partake all followers of Christ all those who have received the sign both children and adults to receive communion. But when you take communion and you place it and and and, and these and kids have to be able to answer questions from elders. Uh, pastors and elders of the church to meet a qualification and be able to tell you all the catechisms and they have to tell you about the Westminster Confession and all these things so that they will be approved by men to take of God's table, the Lord's table. I believe it's sinful. Too often we identify our faith with the church itself, with the institution and loyalty to its institution and loyalty to its forms. I still find people today that are that that I'm gonna say this, we we must read God's word. But but reading God's word alone and reading through it every year does not make you holier. If you don't read God's word to apply it, if you don't read God's word to learn, it's pointless. See, a church that seeks those things seeks conformity and not faith. That's why you go, there's churches, you go to a certain churches and, and people all of a sudden have to dress a certain way. Because it's about conformity to an idea, ideology. Or this person who, who used to drink doesn't drink any longer because the church frowns on it. The girls and the women can't wear pants in one place, but they can wear them in others. It seeks conformity, not, not faith. And what happens is that leads to abuses. And this is why I wanted to talk about this and leave at this, because we, we've had private discussions, and I'll share this. So much of the talk on either side of, the, of, of talking about ecclesiology, or I'm just saying churchology, what they want to identify is abuses and it's abuses on on the pendulum swing on both sides and let me share this with you very simply as we finish those abuses come when people no longer conform to the faith of the tradition or not no longer loyal to the tradition and that's where you find abuses and perversions when the church tries to force that. I will read one little quote and we're done. One line. The traditional marks of the true church, Rushini said, are good but limited. A formally correct church is not necessarily a faithful church. You can do all the things in the right order. You can line yourself up in all these ways according to how other churches or how our forefathers have taught us and still not be a faithful church. Abraham believed in God and he acted on his faith. So too does a true church.
A true church is not a church that holds a certain tradition specifically. Are traditions bad? No, we're not talking that they're bad. What we're saying is when we elevate the tradition, when we elevate these these things of the church to the point that these are the things we ask people to conform to, we're not being a faithful church. A faithful church, faithful church is always calling its people one to another to what? To faithfully obey and walk in Christ Jesus. Our rule of law is not the opinions of one another or the opinions of man, but what? How do we edify and honor Christ? That's all. How do we do that? Therefore, it doesn't, you know, it's not how much you know. That means with every one of you kids in here, it's not how much you know. You don't have to know more than myself or your dad's or your mom's. You don't have to know more. What do you have to be? Faithful to God where you're at now. Seeking to honor him now. And that is a mark of a true church. Not only what we know, but what? We're not just hearers of the word, but we are doers of the word. That's a mark of the true church. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.